Hello, everybody. This is Dan Woods, principal and founder of Early Adopter Research. And today on the Designing Enterprise Platforms podcast, we're going to be talking to Rick Tracy, the chief security officer of Telos. The topic that we're going to talk about is the research mission that we've got on Early Adopter called Creating a Balanced Cybersecurity Portfolio. Rick has had a lot of years of hands-on experience as a chief information security officer type executive, and he was really interested in digging into some of the questions that are risen when you start managing your cybersecurity as a portfolio. When I talked to Rick to prepare for the podcast, he told me that he had an early mentor that explained the value of using the financial portfolio perspective when managing a cybersecurity portfolio. And that's one of the reasons that I created the research mission on this topic. So I'm really excited to talk to Rick. We've been on one other podcast together, and this is the second time around. And it, the first one went really well, and I'm really excited about this one. So Rick, would you introduce yourself and explain what you do at Telos and what Telos does? First, Dan, thank you for having me again. I really appreciate the, the, um, the opportunity to do this podcast. Uh, yeah, my name is Rick Tracy. I've been with Telos Corporation for 34 years. Uh, I'm the chief security officer, and I also um, am responsible for a product that we call Exacta that helps manage um, that, that helps manage cyber risk for organizations and government agencies. Uh, Telos is a, uh, a a pure play cybersecurity company that uh, has invested in a variety of uh, products based on our own intellectual property uh, to to deal with things like identity vetting secure messaging uh, and risk management platforms like the one I mentioned with Exacta. And we also have a very large uh, uh, professional services organization. So we're a combination of a products company and a professional services organization that focuses solely on a, a variety of cyber security missions. Well, that's good because that means that you see lots of different shops and how they run cybersecurity. And I think we'll have well-developed opinions on this based on that and on your own experience. So here's what we want to talk about. If everybody goes to the earlyadopter.com site and you look up on the research missions tab and you go down to the research mission types uh, named creating a balanced cybersecurity portfolio, you'll see at the top of that story a graphic that talks about how the, the, the talks about the steps that you need to go through to create a cybersecurity portfolio. The idea is you need to determine your needs, you allocate your spending according to your risk that you have in various areas. You design your portfolio to get optimal results for the minimum amount of spending to manage the risk that you have in each area. Then you choose the right products to, to implement that, and then you rebalance as needed. And so what we're gonna to talk today about is these last two steps, you know, choosing the right products and rebalancing as needed. Because my view of the cybersecurity portfolio you know, practices, the way that most people manage them, is that once you adopt a cybersecurity uh, technology, it really is sticky. People are very slow to prune their portfolios. And that's problematic because you know, risks change and products change, and they don't always change in the same direction as you need them to make the optimal portfolio. In addition, if you're spending time and management energy on one vendor that's not serving you well, you don't have room financially or in terms of you know, time allocation to handle new solutions that might work better. So what I wanna to talk to Rick about is the idea of 
how do you understand and communicate, you know, this, this challenge of, of, you know, appropriately scoping the risk and appropriately choosing the products to cover that risk and then determining, you know, when you uh, can, uh, uh, when, when, you, when you need to prune your portfolio and how do you need to change it? So, you know, uh, can you talk a little bit, Rick, about some of the experiences you've had, you know, in the field where people have either struggled or successfully managed this issue? Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, maybe the, the best way for me to, you know, get into it, Dan, is to talk just briefly about an experience that I had here uh, probably three years ago where we were under some pressure con from, for contract reasons. Government contracts required us to do, um, to, to invest in the information, the, the, I'm sorry, the ISO 27001 uh, standard. And so we spent a lot of energy um, going through the whole compliance process for ISO 27001, which is a combination of control validation and developing policies and procedures and documenting, documenting, documenting. And, and it took us, I was, I'm going to say, it took us like nine months to get to the point where, where we were prepared to have someone come in and assess us. We, um, we had a third party organization come in and, you know, we were very proud of the fact that they, they said that we were doing everything that we needed to do and we got the certificate and our quarterly security review with a CEO, you know, we were all proud, uh, me and the rest of the security team were all proud of the status. And, um, you know, the response was not what we expected. It was, uh, I don't, you know, congratulations, guys, but I don't really understand, I don't understand how this benefits from a security standpoint. How is it good for the company? It's not, I need context. So, uh, you know, we left that meeting and I was scratching my head trying to figure out how to put all of this all of these things that we had done to comply with this ISO 27001 standard to try to put it in some context that would make it relevant and uh, digestible by our CEO. Oh, and let me, I let me use, stop you there for ahead. a second, yeah. because yeah. I think yeah. this gets to the real, uh, the, a real issue with, with, you know, trying to use the portfolio approach. And that is if you use the portfolio approach as your own internal methodology and you and your team organize it, and then you present it to the rest of the company and they say, well, that's a really nice you know, framework. What does it have to do with us? Then you've sort of lost. But if you use the portfolio approach to organize the risks that the business feels that it owns, that, 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 that it is under threat for, if they can understand that you know, these things you're trying to stop really matter to them, and then these investments that you're making really matter to stopping those risks, then you've sort of won because now you're on the same page and this framework is not just some nice PowerPoint framework. It's actually the way you and the business are communicating. And so it sounded like that at first, this certification process was something that was sort of an internal thing and you had to struggle to make the CEO understand how it was business relevant. The question is, how did you go about explaining that the certification process wasn't just some internal organization of your team, but it actually was relevant to the business problems that the company was facing. Uh, well, there, there are two parts to that answer because uh, 
the utility of, of this cybersecurity framework is, is twofold. One of the, the first part is it, you, you go through the framework to identify the cybersecurity objectives as defined by this internationally recognized framework, which in and of itself makes it, it validates it because it's a, it's a standard that's used by 20 countries and tons and tons of industries in the United States. So by identifying the, 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 the cybersecurity categories that are meaningful to you as a business and, and having those um, and, and having those relate to, to your business objectives, uh, you've basically laid out what your target cybersecurity profile is intended to be. The next step, though, is, re is relating the ISO activities to those categories so that you can see, okay, what, am I what have I actually done to help satisfy uh, those cyber, uh, uh, cybersecurity framework categories? What have I done to achieve those? Uh, or w where are there gaps? I haven't, I haven't done what I need to do to achieve a particular category. And as part of that process, Dan, you can expose the investments that are being made with, as it relates to the ISO controls. What, what, what cybersecurity labor have I invested in? What policies have I created? What technologies have I put in place? And by relating those, those, um, uh, those controls, if you will, if, by relating those to the cybersecurity framework, the 20 odd categories uh, that, that map to the five functions of the cybersecurity framework, you can begin to see where you have perhaps too much investment in a particular category. Go ahead. Uh, Got it. No, and I think I'm seeing exactly where you're going. The idea is the next time you went to the CEO, you said, look, this cybersecurity framework has five categories, identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. And mm -hmm. what, it, what we did is we showed what we were doing in each of these categories to identify threats, to protect ourselves, to detect them, to respond and recover. And we could then tell you which products we bought, which processes we put in, in place, which training we, we, we underwent to help this. Exactly. And, and then now all of a sudden, the, the CEO, instead of saying, oh, that's great that you complied, it, he now can see, or she now can see, all of the activity that's going on to address the risks in each of these areas. Yes, and it's and it's the universe of 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 things that you care about that is the backdrop for all of the uh, all of this all of these investments, so that you can also see where maybe some things uh, that are desirable haven't yet been done. So the the obvious question sometimes comes up: Okay, I can see all the things you have done, but what hasn't yet been done? You know, what how does this fit with a with a broader with with a, with a broader philosophy? And so, the, for, for me anyway, the cybersecurity framework was a way for me to overlay the work that we did for the ISO 27001, overlay it on top of this broader framework so that you could see greater context. Got it. So, in other words, you know, what you're really doing is you're helping explain how to create a detailed portfolio of cybersecurity investments using the NIST CSF framework and the other frameworks. And you're trying to frame that issue so that it makes sense to the business. Now, yes. 
one of the difficult, I would like to go through a few questions that, that, that are related to this process. Do you have anything more to say about how you communicated with the CEO about what, why the framework was business relevant? Then we can go into my more specific questions. Uh, communication wide. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the reason, well, from a communication standpoint, the, the beauty of, and from my perspective, the beauty of this cybersecurity framework is the piece of it that's referred to as the core. So there's the functions that are fed by categories that are fed by subcategories that are, are aligned with controls that you choose. And so from a very granular level, IT people understand security controls and executives understand identify protect detect respond recover and so to the extent that you want to have a conversation that includes everyone from the server room to the boardroom and everyone in between the beauty of the cybersecurity framework is the language rolls up from controls to subcategories to categories to functions and it allows everyone to be talking using the same lexicon, the same set of, um, uh, the same terms. Uh, they all relate to each other. So you have executives who have a way to talk with other parts of the organization using terms that they understand. So the beauty of the cybersecurity framework is its ability to enable cyber risk communications from the server room to the boardroom. And then did you have to educate the CEO about how the, the functions are devolved into categories, subcategories, and controls. Did you explain that or did you just say, look, these functions are what we're after, you know, trust us about the categories, subcategories, and controls? Uh, well, uh, it, it took very little because the, the, the terminology is just, you know, there, there are terms that are, that are relevant, whether you're talking about cyber risk or you're talking about other forms of risk within the organization, they're just terms that resonate. So the, the, the education was the linkage from functions to categories, subcategories to controls, and just under, so they can understand that, he can understand that taxonomy. Um, but it, I mean, it's, 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 really, it's really intuitive. So it didn't take a lot of time for us to explain what it was, how it worked, and why it was beneficial. Uh, after about five minutes of us talking about cyber risk using this framework, you could see the light went on and it went from being, uh, I don't understand the business value of ISO 27001 to all of a sudden, I understand how our investment in ISO 27001 has helped us achieve our broader uh, information security and cyber uh, risk uh, objectives. Got it. And so once you're on the same page then, now over time you have to handle some really difficult questions uh, and so that's what I want to move on to next. Okay. So the, yep. the next thing I want to talk about is let's say that you have this conversation. The CEO understands what's going on. If some, if board member asks the CEO, Hey, um, why are we spending X on cybersecurity? They can give a good answer. They can say, look, there are five functions we have to deal with. You know, those functions are then devolved into a variety of categories. And in each of the categories, we, we chose the right controls. And this is how it all works. And this is how we're spending our money to get the protection we need. And so you've actually armed the CEO to be able to, you know, tell a better story to whoever they have to tell it to. But now six months have gone by, a year has gone by. And now the CEO or maybe the CSO or anybody else might ask the question, 
do we really have what works for us now, a year later? You know, how can we identify where we should expand investments in certain controls or where we should prune investments in certain controls? And, and this, is a, this is, I think, one of the hardest questions that, that modern CISOs have to face is, you know, understanding when a risk has dropped so that you can then change your control or when a new risk has appeared and how you're either going to adapt to it with either changing the way you use current products or vetting new products. How do you, how do you address this issue? Yeah, well, the, the way that we address the issue is through a, a, a process that everyone, I think, recognizes as continuous monitoring. And almost regardless of which framework you choose to adhere to, the concept of continuous monitoring, or whatever you might call it, continuous monitoring is maybe the most recognizable terminology, suggests that you don't go through the process once and put it on a shelf. You, you go through the process, identify risk, you, you, you prioritize them, and you create action plans. And you measure progress towards the, the, the completion of those action plans, which means that you may have to, you may have to make additional investments in um, addressing a particular risk, which might take a year because that's what your budget cycle is, or require a policy and it it'll take shorter time. It, it just requires someone to get to it. So you identify what, what you, who, who is going to do what by when, and each that, that, that's in, in a nutshell, the type of data that you have in action plans, the, tr the, the trick then is to make sure that you're managing the action plans and the remediation activity to closure. And so, um, that, so that, that's one part of the answer. The other but, but, part but, of the answer. Well, well, let's stick with that part of the answer for a second. So, sure. But so, so that, that, that the idea is that you monitor your landscape, you monitor the threats that are coming in, you then see that maybe there's a potential for you to do a better job in handling a certain type of threat earlier in the, in the, in the attack chain or you know, to, to make it your response better or whatever. You create a plan to deal with it and then you, you, that action plan you know, carries out that improvement that you're making. Is that, that's essentially what you're saying. Correct, yes. And so, the, and, and that, that sounds really good. But what I'm interested in more of is that Let's say you're monitoring, and then how do you ever understand when your control investment is maybe too large? Your investment in process people, technology, is over capacity to the threats that you are addressing with them. That maybe there's a simpler way of doing it so that you can either reduce investment in that control or prune a product out of existence. Because it seems like this is a much rarer event in cybersecurity portfolios. Yeah, and, and, the, and the value of the framework um, comes into play there because what I alluded to just a few minutes ago is that um, the, you have, what we've done is we've, is we've aligned our security investments for each of the CSF subcategories that are in scope for us. So let's say that you have five investments that are associated, five technology investments that are associated with a particular subcategory. Uh, it begs the question when you go, when, when you have your uh, quarterly security reviews with your management team and CEO, why, explain to me please, 
the the requirement for these five investments why do we need five and through that discussion either you identify the fact that hmm that's a great question because we we were supposed to have stopped support for this product because this other one was to have taken its place so it can i the pruning process can can be the result of you know absent some way of visualizing all of this investment data in one place things can fall through the cracks you can think that you've um that you've eliminated a particular investment in favor of another one and it do, and it didn't happen for reason, for for reasons that you need to investigate uh so having having the ability to see all of your investments using the framework as the as the backdrop helps you helps you look to see where perhaps you're overinvested and you say do it, it, so even before it goes to the to a management meeting IT people can say to them to can ask themselves uh yeah if we bought, if we add this to our portfolio of cybersecurity solutions we don't need this thing anymore it's it the the utility is is overcome by us investing in this other thing but if if you're just adding to adding new widgets to your environment because there's a new thing on the market that sounds better um the discipline uh of pruning as you put it may not be as easy because all of the all of the investments aren't visible in one place got it so it sounds like what you're saying is that the the pruning really only has a chance of happening if you really use the framework and your and you you map out your investment portfolio in a disciplined manner and what i mean by that is this you map out all of the controls that you are going to implement you then you know explain to yourself somehow what you know you're going to get in terms of mitigation out of those controls you monitor to make sure that you're getting what you're supposed to and then you 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 do the the refactoring process is saying oh okay i implemented all those controls with this portfolio of products is there a way for me to refactor that portfolio so that i can take out some products add some others and now get all of the controls implemented for less money or get more effective implementation for the same amount of money and it's that in that process of refactoring is the best opportunity for pruning it sounds like for us for us the answer to that is yes i mean that's uh that's how we've managed to really stay on top of uh of of the investments uh to ensure that we're not overinvesting and to and to and to at least be able to ask ourselves the question if we add this if we add this are all these other things in that in that category still necessary and if the answer is yes then you then you theoretically you should be able to justify it but if not then you know smart people agree that you know that this thing replaces that thing uh and it costs less money so the overall cost of achieving uh security with relates to that particular category you, you you could argue that you could bring it down because uh you've pruned something that was more expensive and replaced it with something that was less expensive is there any There's way a, that we can talk about an example maybe you know over time that over time like antivirus stuff was then pruned away by certain other technologies which made them less necessary because we've heard for many years antivirus is dead but 
there's huge amounts of antivirus systems running all over the place. Now they call them endpoint protection. But, but the, the idea is, um, you know, can you tell a story about, you know, one type of product that allowed another type of product to be pruned? You know, you, don't, you can use, you know, uh, vendor names if you want, or you can just use categories as well. Yeah, let me think. Um, the, the antivirus is an interesting one because, uh, yeah, it, it, gets, it, it gets a lot of criticism. Uh, and you could argue that it, it, it's not effective and that other technologies uh, like Carbon Black uh, could, you know, could, could achieve the same, the same goal. The, the trouble is when is sometimes you have an auditor that is specifically looking, though the, the requirement says antivirus is, is necessary. And so by the letter of the law, you, 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 not having antivirus could be perceived as a weakness. So um, uh, as much as I think people would like to do with, to not spend on antivirus because they think that they have it covered in other ways, sometimes I think you feel like you have to because that's the that's the that's the language that someone's going to be looking for in the in, in the requirement. Um, but a specific example, uh, I'm trying to think, Dan. Um, it, it's it's not. I would say it's not so much a case where uh, a type of technology, in my in from my experience, it's not a type of technology that's used can overcome something that you've used in the past so much as a, a, a new, a, a new product will have capabilities uh, bundled that allow you to have one product that does multiple things versus five products that are all sort of point solutions. Got it. So you're saying that, 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 that essentially what happens is that the pruning, if it ever happens, happens in the context of a suite of products. So the idea is you go from having four different products for endpoint protection to having an endpoint protection suite. And then inside that suite, the vendor may, you know, adjust which, which product does what. And eventually someday, maybe we'll, in those suites, we won't have antivirus the way we think of it anymore, but it won't be because you pruned antivirus. It was because the vendors pruned it out of their suites. Yeah. And, and maybe an example by using a, a vendor name is uh, is Palo Alto Networks that is they've you know they've gone from being a pure play firewall company to bundling a number of security solutions within their platform that allows you to to do multiple things through a vendor as opposed that that you don't have to figure out how to integrate with each other or they don't have separate maintenance cost st streams and so forth. It's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a function. Some combinations of security solutions are a function of a, of a consolidated platform. And Palo Alto, I think is an example of that. Got it. And other companies like Fortinet are obviously creating what they call, I think a security fabric, which is a, a platform. And, uh, you know, every, these, all, the way I've studied is all of these vendors have different approach, approaches to assembling that integrated platform and mm -hmm. different, different, you know, kind of dogmas as I, I, I talk about them of what makes the perfect platform. Right. So Rick, 
it's clear that one of the important things is to be able to identify gaps between the security controls that you have in place and your desired ideal security. Can you give me some examples about how you've identified such gaps and what you did to remedy them? Uh, yeah, sure. The uh, gap, you know, for me, gaps come in a, in a couple different flavors. Uh, uh, one type of gap is it, we identify is uh, is through the the requirement to deal with new security standards to do business with the federal government. Like 800-171 is is a is a fairly new standard that the federal government is putting on government contractors. Uh, ISO 27001 has various security controls that require compliance that we may or may not have met prior to our, our desire to comply with that standard, which were also, that, that was also something that helped us uh, win new business because there are contractual sorts of um, uh, extra points, if you will, for from a procurement standpoint, if you met 27,001. So it was important for us to meet 27,001, but it meant that, meant that we had to deal with things that we hadn't dealt with in the past. So there are, so that's an, that's an example of new things that, uh, that we have to deal with. And, but there are also technology things that you realize uh, that you have to deal with because what you've been done in the past maybe weren't sufficient. And an example of that might be um, uh, you know, patch management. Uh, you, you realize over the course of some period of time that your patch management solution uh, is leaving you with far too many critical and high vulnerabilities that should have been patched, uh, but for whatever reason, weren't. And so the gap then is that you you have a, a, a patch management responsibility that's not being fulfilled because your patch management solution isn't doing what you thought it was and, and, it's, and it's become evident over time and it forces you to relook at your patch, patch management system investment to find something better. I see, so this is where like, for example, you might have a graph of you know, time between the announcement of a critical patch and its application in your environment. And if it turns out that that, that delay is, you know, the graph of that, how, how uh, the average delay is going, you know, higher and higher, you can say, hey, wait a sec, we need to do a better job of patch management. You know, that, that, that's an example of a control, a monitoring that leads to an awareness that you have a deficiency. Yes, and it, it could also it could also result in you realizing that uh, to rely completely on technology to deal with patch management is something that's something you just can't, you can't expect. So you may then say, we need to add to our investment portfolio another person because there are certain things that a human has to patch because the technology isn't able to patch those systems because of where they are or how they're configured or whatever the case may be. So from a portfolio standpoint, you can look at what your technology investment is in patch management. Is that the right technology or not? Make those choices or make those adjustments as needed. But you may also look at the, the result of uh, your patch management over time and say, no matter what we use with technology standpoint, we're not going to get where we need to be because it requires another human in the loop. 
Got it. And the idea is that the controls are never a product, essentially. They're always, you know, a people using a product yeah. in a context and also processes that happen outside of the product as well. It's, yes. never just a, it's never just, let's buy this and it's done. Right. Got it. Um, well, that's really cool. Now, you told me that, uh, uh, you know, you had uh, uh, worked with Drew Ladner, the CIO of the Treasury, and he was one of the first people who told you about financial portfolio management ideas and how they applied to cybersecurity portfolios. Could he, you said he now runs a company called Pascal Metrics, but could you tell me a little bit about, you know, your first experience coming to this idea that, you know, thinking of cybersecurity in the way that people think of financial portfolios is a helpful thing to do? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that was a long time ago, and, I, and I'm surprised that I actually remembered his name, but it was just that, it was that impactful to me. It was the cold, hard slap in the face that I needed at the time, I think, that you think you have the answers for everything and you go talk to an executive and he at the time was the CIO for the treasury department. And, uh, he said, he, basically he said, Rick, what you're doing is good and all, but from a risk management standpoint, you should be thinking of it like financial, the financial sector does as a portfolio. And, um, so he was the first one to, to sensitize me to the fact that you can't treat everything at the same level, you ha all systems aren't equal importance. All IT elements that you that make up your uh, your business systems aren't of equal importance. There, there, there's a need to uh, there's a need to prioritize, and you need to look at your information security risk management process as a portfolio uh, endeavor, um, which means that you have to. You have to prioritize based on what's most what's most important to your mission, and uh, it was it was the first time anybody had talked to me had tried to translate financial services portfolio management concepts into IT security risk management concepts, and this was in this was in the early 2000s. It was it was a long time ago, uh, but I never forgot the point. I never forgot. I haven't I haven't unfortunately kept in touch with uh, Drew Ladner. But I never forgot his name, and uh, be, and I really appreciate the 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 guidance that he gave to me at, at the very very early stages of uh, what we were doing with Exacta in the early 2000s. Cool. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about um, two more questions that kind of sum up some of the things that we've said so far, uh, and then I think we can declare victory. The first okay. one is um, how do you get the most value? out of using these cybersecurity frameworks, you know, in the context of managing a portfolio? Like what's the right way to, you know, I mean, like, first of all, you know, uh, you know, once you, we're gonna, the next question is gonna be about how do you choose the one that best fits you? But this question is about once you've chosen one, how do you, you know, go about making sure that it saves you time and money, it improves your communication, that, you know, it's using this portfolio is not, an annoyance, but is a benefit to everybody. I mean, using this uh, this framework is not an annoyance, but is a benefit to everybody. Oh, well, <clears throat> my suggestion is to walk before you run. And the beauty of pick the pick the framework that works best for you. I mean, there there's there are a number of them. We picked the cybersecurity framework uh, for 
reasons that we've talked about. That's the NIST framework. Uh, the NIST cybersecurity framework, the CSF, yep, yeah. uh, for internal use. And uh, the, the, the value of it is that it's a framework, and NIST encourages organizations to use it as they see fit, as much or as little, adapt it, modify it. My suggestion is to start small and then grow quickly, right? Add to it over time quickly uh, to get more benefit from it. So I, the, the, maybe for a lot of organizations, especially smaller ones, the worst mistake you could make, I think, is to try to cram down too much too soon, and it just discourages everyone. Identify the pieces of the framework that offer you the most value right now so that people begin to buy into it, and then, and then add to how, expand how you use the framework to get to to derive more and more and more value over time. So you really need to train the rest of the company to some extent about what a cybersecurity framework is and how you're using it in your portfolio construction. Uh, may, well, may, maybe not everyone in the company, but there are people who are involved in the in the risk management process that certainly need to be aware of what it is and how it works and your thoughts about how to roll it out. And so in our company, there are, I don't know, there are probably 30 people, um, but not everyone, not, not everyone in the company would play a role in executing the cybersecurity framework to manage your risks. Um, so not everyone needs to understand things in, in, in that sort of detail. Then recognizing that you use it to manage risk is one thing, but um, educating people on how to use it and their role or their, their visibility as it relates to the framework is, is much smaller than the entire company. Right, but, but the idea is that the people who own the risk, the business owners of the risk, who you work for to manage that risk, they need to know that there's five you know, uh, uh, categories of functions, you know, identify, yes. protect, detect, respond, and recover. And in each one of those you know, uh, functions, there's a, a set of categories of controls and that you have chosen, you know, that the, and that the, the risks that the company faces are these, you know, and that you have chosen a certain set of controls that, you know, can be mapped into the framework that addresses those risks. I mean, you know, and then whether or not they need to know the subcategories and, and, the, and, the, and the actual controls and the vendors, that's different. But they need to know this top-down story that's being told, I assume. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Fair enough. Yep. Definitely. Got it. Okay. So then... Um, the next question is, how can somebody who's a CISO, CSO, choose between the different frameworks? What are the sort of personalities of the frameworks? You know, the, and you know, which frameworks are out there to choose from and which are the strengths and weaknesses of each one of them? And I know that this is, you can't answer this question in great detail, but if you could give me a high level answer, that would be useful. Well, the, Maybe it's helpful for me to explain why we decided to go with the cybersecurity framework. And it's because our, we have a very, very uh, long history with the NIST organization. We've, done, we've, we've used uh, other frameworks in support of our customers, like the risk management framework, which is a much heavier duty uh, framework that was originally targeted towards federal agencies. We're very familiar with the NIST way of doing business. Uh, we were we were staunch supporters of the cybersecurity framework when it was introduced in 2014 for critical infrastructures in the U.S. And what we saw was just 
broad adoption of the cybersecurity framework because of all of the various utility and, and efficiency that we've talked about here on this podcast, the, the ability to communicate and the, the structure of the core. And there are, as I understand it, there are more than 20 com- countries around the world that have embraced the NIST cybersecurity framework as a national standard at, to, at some level. Uh, so the, the adoption of the cybersecurity framework is just much more prevalent than other competing frameworks that exist. And it seems to me that many of the other frameworks are trying to figure out how to align their framework to the cybersecurity framework because they recognize that the cybersecurity framework is the, 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 the primary framework that people are paying attention to right now. Got it. So in other words, you're saying there's a lot of momentum for the NIST cybersecurity framework, NIST CSF, and uh, that just seemed like the, you know, the, 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 the place to, to, to go that we're sort of like, you know, there, there's, there's a critical mass of attention uh, toward it and everybody's framing their products and their conversations around it. Yeah, actually Gartner put out a slide a, a year or two ago that showed the, 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 the NIST cybersecurity framework adoption. They expected that 50% of, com- of companies in the United States, more than 50% of companies in the United States by 2020 would be using the cybersecurity framework to some, to some degree. Got it. Um, excellent. Well, this was a, a, a really good podcast. You've explained a lot of stuff in detail, as usual, with the Designing Enterprise Platform podcast at Early Adopter Research. We wander around and go deep into topics and then pop back up and talk about big picture mm-hmm. stuff. And we've done that today. Uh, I really appreciate your uh, time with us today, Rick, and, and thank you for sharing all your wisdom. Dan, thank you very much.